Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What the Forensics. I'm Journey, and I'm joined by my fantastic co-hosts, Nicole and Rebecca. This week, we're discussing Guy, Paul Morin, and wrongful convictions. This is the third and last part of our Second Law episode theme that we've had for the last couple episodes. I'm very excited for this episode because I don't know much about the Christine Jessup murder and the wrongful conviction of Guy Paul Morin. Before we begin, a listener's discretion is advised, as in this episode there will be discussions of sexual assault, murder, and suicidal ideations. And with that, I'll hand it over to Rebecca to tell us more about Guy Paul Morin. Hello! So... We are doing the episode on the wrongful conviction of Guy Palmorin, but I think uh, to get the full picture of it, we need to briefly go over the case that he was convicted of, or the crime. So on the 3rd of October in 1984 in Queensville, Ontario, nine-year-old Christine Jessup went missing after arriving home alone from school sometime before 4.10 p.m. Christine's parents had arrived home around 4.10, which is how we know that she was home before then, and they had noticed that she had been home because her school bag was on the kitchen counter from uh, her day at school. They knew that she had plans to meet a friend at the park that afternoon, so they weren't really concerned when they first got home and saw that she wasn't there. However, in the early evening, when she still hadn't returned home, they became concerned and they called the police. So this call to the police prompted an initial search that evening of the police, Uh, Just a general search of the neighborhood to see if she was anywhere nearby. But the following day, a community-wide search party was looking for Christine Jessup. So this was like the neighbors, the community members, the police. Everyone wanted to find this young girl. Um, So unfortunately, uh, this search was fruitless. They didn't find her. They didn't really find any evidence uh, as to where she went. And the case kind of went cold as they had trouble uh, finding suspects or any leads. Unfortunately, on December 31st of 1984, over 50 kilometers from her home where she went missing, her body was found by two civilians that were out for a walk near their home on a tractor path. Imagine Um, just finding the dead body of a nine-year-old on a morning walk. That would be so traumatic. It would be traumatic and just devastating like my god a young girl who would who would think about doing something like this to a young like to a child well I guess like anybody too like I couldn't even fathom just like walk into the superstore and finding a dead body on the way so she was found deceased um only partially clothed she had the sweater she was wearing pulled over her head um and her underwear and blue corduroy pants were near her feet Um, And she was badly decomposed. Her body was found laying on its back in an unnatural and sexually suggestive position. Uh, And there was also presence of semen in her underwear. So unfortunately, both of these facts, as well as the fact that she was only partially clothed, strongly suggest that she was also sexually assaulted. Um, Did they ever do tests? Like, did they do a kit or during the autopsy, did they prove that she was sexually assaulted or is it just kind of like a oh it's makes sense thing I don't quite remember reading whether they had actually determined based on the autopsy if she was sexually assaulted uh, because at the autopsy they were able to determine her death which was caused by multiple stab wounds to the chest Um, but they did also note that at the time that her body was found the level of decomposition suggested she'd already been deceased for a couple of months. So based on this, I'm not sure if they 
be able to find semen uh, or evidence of sexual assault on the autopsy. I guess it depends yeah. on how decom- decomposed her body was. Interesting. I guess it makes sense with the evidence there found like around her to suggest that. But I was just curious if it was confirmed. Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, they had uh, the autopsy suggested that she'd been deceased for a couple months already. So as she was only found about three months after her disappearance, this suggests that she was murdered around the initial time of her kidnapping. Based on these findings of her body and ruling it a homicide and not accidental, the missing persons investigation that had uh, been open for Jessup's case was upscaled to a murder investigation. So that's the backstory kind of of the initial crime, what had happened. Uh, No point during this time was Guy Palmerin a suspect. There was nothing at the scene to suggest that he was guilty or had any involvement. So I just want to start with where the problems of this case began, which was the police investigation. Um, When Christine's parents called to report the daughter missing, the missing person investigation was opened by the York Regional Police. However, because her body was found over 50 kilometers away, it was in a different police jurisdiction. So the case was transferred to the Durham Regional Police. Apparently, the two police stations had like a little bit of a feud, weren't happy that they had to transferred over so I don't know if that had impacted anything if they missed transferring evidence but both of the investigations uh, independently had major flaws that probably contributed to not finding the actual perpetrator and wrongfully convicting someone else so I just want to briefly say that a lot of the information that I'm getting from this comes from the inquiry into Moran's case and what led to his wrongful conviction. It was written by the Ministry of the Attorney General. So I think I'm getting the most accurate information. <laughs> okay, good. It sounds like it. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. So to begin, we're going to talk about the York Regional Police's investigation. Theirs was the missing person investigation. And the first problem was... Uh, likely a contributing factor to a lot of the other things they failed to do uh, because it was stated in the inquiry that the officers lacked communication and coordination and failed to keep track of their assigned roles during the investigation and also failed to keep note of which tasks they'd already completed. So they don't know how to do their job. Yes, essentially. Yeah, essentially. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so maybe because of this disorganization, Uh, The following problems occurred during the investigation. They failed to preserve any evidence from Christine Jessup's home. They didn't dust for fingerprints, not at the initial scene, nor in the weeks following. So this is problematic. I'm sure you guys know why. But not only were they unable to get fingerprints that they could use to potentially identify Christine Jessup, But they also didn't dust for fingerprints that could have been foreign in the house and suggested a suspect. So that's That's disappointing. Yeah, that's infuriating. Yeah. Immediately following uh, her parents' report, they failed to conduct an in-depth canvassing of the neighbors and others in the neighborhood to see if they'd seen anything. So they waited like a couple weeks to really canvass the neighborhood. So they didn't get meticulous details from like immediate eyewitnesses so that's a problem that's Um, so annoying like I'm not a police officer but 
is that not just what you do? Like, wouldn't you want to get every single shred of information from everyone around you? You would think. It's also noted that when they were, like, talking to witnesses or talking to people in the neighborhood, they didn't usually do this in, like, a very standard professional way of questioning. They often did it in, like, groups. So the witnesses could talk amongst each other about what they may have seen, and the police were also telling the family and the witnesses updates about the case and what they had been finding. So their information could very well have been altered by what the police were telling them. There's so many things wrong with this already. So many. Like, how did they... Did one person not be like, hey, you're doing something wrong? Like, did... Oh, any, oh okay. Okay, continue. <laughs> yeah, so following up with the problematic how they deal with witnesses, the system that they use to ensure that all of the reports, so like the civilians calling in with potential details they had seen or heard, um, the system they used for those and to ensure that they were all read and processed in a timely manner was very poor and allowed for a lot of potential leads and follow-ups to actually slip through the cracks uh, because they failed to prioritize and follow up on as the inquiry called them, hot leads. So just as one example of how this was problematic to the case, a woman had called into the police station to say that she saw what appeared to be a man forcibly putting a child in a car. Um, However, they did not follow up with this woman until 12 days after she had initially reported it to the police. Are you kidding me? I wish I was. I'm just too angry to talk. Go ahead, continue. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So the final, like, major problem with the York investigation that was noted in the inquiry was that the the indexing system that they used to file all of the potential sightings and leads, they called it archaic. So instead of just being able to, like, pull up all of the files regarding potential vehicle sightings or apparent sightings of Christine, they weren't able to look at any of the files unless they had the name of the author of the report or the name of the person who claimed to see the event. So they needed like really specific information about the written report to be able to actually look into any of them. Yeah, so that just kind of slowed down the investigation. Uh, And during the time with the York Regional Police, no real suspects were determined. So moving on to the Durham Regional Police investigation where it was upscaled to a homicide, There was a more thorough initial investigation done of the crime scene, but that doesn't mean that their investigation was much better. So Sergeant Michael Michalowski was assigned the role of chief identification officer. So he was responsible for collecting and preserving original evidence at the crime scene. Wait, so this is after they transferred departments though? Yes. So this now is after they found her body and after the Durham Regional Police took over. This is months after. You're, there's no evidence, like especially at the house. There's not going to be any evidence for them to collect. They didn't do their initial. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Oh my god. Yeah. So there was. <laughs> they didn't really preserve any evidence from the initial initial crime scene where she went missing. But Sergeant Michael Malous Michael Michalowski was in charge of uh, collecting evidence from the crime scene of the body. So the body site. Okay. So additionally, Inspector Robert Brown, he was in charge of Durham's Crimes Against Person Squad. 
He took over the investigation, so he took charge. But once Guy Paul was identified as a suspect, the officers, Shepard and Fitzpatrick, were given the role of lead investigator. So December 31st, her body was called in. They found it deceased. Um, and supposedly, there was supposed to be a severe snowstorm beginning later that evening, the day that the crime scene was discovered. So Detective Fitzpatrick, who at the time was just a detect or just an investigating officer, suggested that they pull a tarp over the whole crime scene until the next day so that they could do what they could uh, the current day, but then they could come back to the crime scene in the days to follow to continue their systematic search. They didn't follow his suggestion. Instead, they taped off, like, you know, put crime tape around the whole body site and all got on their hands and knees to look for evidence around the body site. This sounds like it was good, but they never used any form of like formal grid search to ensure that they were actually covering all the ground. So Journey, I know this would infuriate you studying forensic (laughs) anthropology and archaeology. There was no formal like grid search, so they very well could have missed evidence on the ground. Additionally, they didn't finish this search before it got dark for the night. So the snowstorm came and they had they had gotten all the evidence they could because it was covered in snow. Did they just leave her? They Overnight. collected the body. They did collect the body. Okay. 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 I like when you're t- talking about the tarp, I was like, yeah, no, that's a really good idea. Like, I don't know why this isn't like the bad section. And then you're like, yeah, they just didn't do it. That's awesome. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's that's why it's bad. They just didn't do it. Yeah, what do you that's think the, so annoying. What do you think the IQ of these detectives were? Of everyone working this case. I really <laughs> don't know enough about <laughs> IQ <laughs> to tell you. I have some more infuriating information about Michael Michalowski later on. So, uh, Amazing. Can't wait can't to tell wait. you guys that. So the investigation of the body site didn't really provide any significant evidence or leads to the investigation. They did note that they found smoking paraphernalia on the site. Um, however... A lot of people smoke. They couldn't draw like any specific suspect lists from the from the cigarette butts they found. Even though there was semen present in her underwear, they were not able to test it for DNA because it was 1985 and that just hadn't been invented yet. So throughout the investigation, as I had mentioned earlier, the detectives kept close contact with various witnesses, as well as the Jessup family. Uh, However, none of the interactions with any of these people were video or audio recorded, and the only evidence we have of them are the notes that the police had taken in their notebooks. It wasn't until a couple months after finding her body, on February 14th, that the investigators felt that they had finally found a potential suspect. And this suspect came from a conversation that the police had with Christine's family, on the 14th, and it was reported that Christine's mother had mentioned her neighbor was a weird type guy who played clarinet. This neighbor was Guy Paul Morin. Um, Was this conversation, it wasn't recorded. It was not recorded. Perfect. Unfortunately. Do you think if he played a different instrument, he would be that weird neighbor that became a suspect? That's a good question. I don't like, know. Does, is it the clarinet that makes him a weird guy? Or is it just he's a weird guy that happens to play clarinet? I mean, that's, that's like, I hope it's not the clarinet. Because, like, my mom used to play the clarinet in high school. And I really don't think she's that creepy. But, you know, I played clarinet, too. I don't think I'm that creepy. 
But see, like, if he played an alto sax, he'd be, like, the cool guy next He also did play saxophone, actually. They just didn't mention that. They said he was weird. So it's the clarinet. Sorry, Tara. Mm. It's the clarinet. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let her know. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, despite the fact that the only negative thing that Christine's mother said about Guy Paul was that he was a weird-type guy who played clarinet, the police got suspicious. So... Little bit of background now that we finally have Guy Paul into the story. He was the Jessup's neighbor, and at the time of Christine's disappearance, he was working as a finishing sander with a furniture manufacturing firm. Uh, people had noted that he was kind of a quiet guy, he kept to himself, and he also played both saxophone and clarinet in a community band. He was also a beekeeper and was currently helping his father work on home renovations. So, nothing about him sounds suspicious, but the police didn't care. Even though the only nice. evidence was that her mother had said he, he was kind of weird, the police decided that they were going to set up surveillance of his house on February 19th. I'm not entirely sure what came of this surveillance. Uh, I never specifically mentioned, but it did say that a few days after setting up surveillance on February 22nd, two police officers had approached Guy at his home for an interview. So they kind of approached him like in his at his front, uh, front lawn. The investigators... <laughs> This made me laugh, and I think it will for you too. They brought a tape recorder, so they didn't they didn't record anything else, but they brought a tape recorder because they wanted to record this interview. They were going to do it surreptitiously, so they didn't want Guy to know that they were recording it. However, they started the recording and only actually got half of the full interview because they didn't know that they had to flip the tape over halfway through to finish recording. You're lying. I wish I was. That's infuriating. (laughs) Was this used as evidence in court? I don't believe that the tape itself was used as evidence, uh, but Moran did say a couple things that were not in the slightest incriminating. They were just a little suspicious to the police. They felt they had grounds to arrest him. So... Everything on that tape should be struck from the te- the court. Like, no matter what is incriminating, they should just not allow that in court. Yeah. So during the interview, as I had said, Moran never said anything that resembled a confession or resembled any amount of guilt. But police did say they found it suspicious that Moran knew that the body was found across from Ravenshoe Road, even though... It was public knowledge at the time that that's where her body was found. They, it was in the news. Wow, you read the newspaper? Time to arrest you. <laughs> like, what the heck? So they found that suspicious, even though it really shouldn't have been suspicious. Uh, but the only two things that, to the average person, would seem a little weird. It's not really sure why he said these things. But one thing that Moran said during this interview, quote, all little girls are sweet and beautiful, but grow up to be corrupt, unquote. Ugh, and he I also like made, that. <laughs> yeah, that I found that one a little odd, but that still doesn't mean that he was guilty. No. And he also made a snarky remark about his innocence, but it was believed that he just said that because he was annoyed at being considered suspect because they had no evidence against him. I can see that. That's fair. Yeah, so he told the police during this interview that he had an alibi. He had been at work and was driving home from work when the crime was suspected to have taken place. So it couldn't have been him. Following his interview, they 
They said, okay, thanks for your time. Let him go. They obtained his time card from work so they could figure out when he actually left work. The time card states that he clocked out at 3.39 p.m. And uh, to verify his alibi, they wanted to test how long it would take to drive from his place of work to his home. So what they found was that even if he made absolutely no stops driving home and got like no red lights, no anything, the earliest he could have arrived home was 4.14 p.m. Uh, however, this conflicted with the time that the Jessops returned home at 4.10 p.m. So that that's a s- solid alibi. Yeah, that basically suggests he couldn't have kidnapped her because he was like out of town he was working out of town driving home um was this kind of like a thing that they tested to see he could stop on his way home to pick her up like was she kind of in the area the house or was he like super out of the way did it make any mention of it well i believe his workplace was like around a 30 40 minute drive outside Um, like in the opposite direction it's not like coming back into his place he didn't pass like the Jessup's house kind of thing no the Jessup's were his neighbors so they really Mm -hmm. tested how long it took to get from work to the Jessup's house because his house was right beside theirs and they believe she went missing around the neighborhood because she they knew she was home because she dropped her school bag off after school okay that makes sense I forgot about that part no problem despite this pretty solid alibi police didn't care They arrested him on April 22nd of 1985. And this is Durham police? This is Durham police, yes. So later in the evening, uh, after he was arrested, police conducted a search of his home to look for any potential evidence, which they found none of. Um, And Morin willingly gave them samples of his hair, blood, and his saliva. He was then interrogated for six hours, Uh, where he maintained his innocence for the entire thing and never gave any amount of incriminating evidence. So his trial began on the 7th of January, 1986, 10 months after his arrest, and he was denied bail. So he spent those 10 months sitting in jail waiting for trial. I just have a quick question. Why did he need to give hair, blood, and saliva samples if DNA testing wasn't a thing yet? Hair samples, uh, I believe, was because uh, they found one black hair embedded in the necklace that Christine was wearing when she died or when she was found. Uh, So they wanted a hair to compare it to because they believed that it could have belonged to the perpetrator. Um, Blood, I assume because that way they can uh, get at least the blood type which could narrow down the suspect list and saliva. I'm not positive. I don't know if you can tell if someone is a secretor using saliva or not, but I also assume that maybe they thought DNA would eventually be useful. And that, well, DNA was kind of invented in the UK first. So they could have like heard of it and like, okay, we'll take this just in case. Yeah, that's a possibility. I'm not positive why they took all those things, but that's my logical guess okay fair enough so like i said he was arrested had to wait 10 months in jail before his trial uh this trial only lasted for four weeks the evidence that the prosecution had were expert testimony regarding hair and fiber comparisons these comparisons were conducted by scientists stephanie nisnik and norman erickson at the center of forensic sciences in toronto The hair analysis was conducted, as I had said, on the hair that was found embedded in a piece of skin on Christine's necklace. 
And also they had done the analysis on three hairs that they found in Moran's vehicle that they believed were dissimilar to his hair. So they thought it could have belonged to someone else. The conclusion they reached by this analysis was that the hair found on Christine's necklace was microscopically similar to Moran's and the hair found in Moran's vehicle was microscopically similar to Christine's. However, they never, the scientists never specified the limitations of hair analysis. Uh, so they never told the police that like on its own hair analysis isn't very probative. You need other evidence to back it up because obviously more than one person's hair can look microscopically similar because it's hair. Anyways, because they never shared their limitations, the police took this as like, oh my God, we got our guy sort of thing. So they really believed the hair was his. Uh, and the fiber evidence in question was taken from Christine's clothing and recorder case because she played recorder at school. Supposedly, just like the hair sample, the fibers found matched, quote unquote, fibers that the prosecutors claim could have come from Moran's vehicle and home, even though, as we know, you can't match anything to someone because there's always a probability of it not being true. Match should just not be a word in the dictionary. At least in not general. a forensic one. Just get rid of it. <laughs> Throw it out. So despite the fact that these pieces of forensic evidence have uh, as I had said, low probative value when not it used in conjunction with other evidence, such as like DNA or even like circumstantial evidence, it was used as the key evidence in the Crown's case against Moran. Also used by the prosecution were two jailhouse informants, and we know how much we love those. There were two jailhouse informants. The first was Robert Dean May. He was Moran's cellmate uh, during Moran's 10 months awaiting trial. He alleges that Moran had confessed to the murder of Christine to him one night in prison. The second jailhouse informant in all of the case notes goes by Mr. X because his real identity was protected by a publication ban. He was residing in the cell next to Moran and May. So to verify the first witness's testimony, Mr. X had claimed that he overheard the confession occurring in the cell next to him. I have a lot of problem with informant testimony anyways. But it makes it even worse knowing that May had a lengthy criminal history of crimes of dishonesty and Mr. X told the police that he would give them anything they wanted if they got him into a halfway house as opposed to the prison. Their testimonies were admitted into the court and considered key evidence. That is so no, aggravating. Yeah. So the defense, on the other hand... They had their argument that he had a very strong alibi and had people that could prove like he left work at the time he said he did. The like the very police officers investigating did their own experiment and found he couldn't have gotten home in that amount of time. Luckily, four weeks after the trial began, uh, the jury actually resided with the defense and they found him not guilty and he was acquitted. Happy, happy ever after. Not quite. The Crown wasn't happy with the verdict. Uh, on March 4th, 1986, they filed an appeal of Moran's acquittal. I thought, whoa, whoa, wait, well, mm -mm, pause. I thought if you were found not guilty of a crime, you cannot be recharged. Is this the same kind of thing or no? How is it That's different? That's what I initially thought too, 
Uh, however, it states that they believe they had reason to uh, retry it. They said the reason that they appealed the acquittal was because the Crown claimed that there was a mistake in the juror's instructions, specifically around the meaning of reasonable doubt. So they thought that his acquittal should be thrown out and retried because the jury didn't fully understand what reasonable doubt was. Those bastards. Those yeah, so bastards. Loophole. So the Court of Appeal for Ontario, they agreed with the Crown. So they accepted the appeal and they ordered a new trial. Moran obviously didn't like this. So he appealed the decision to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. However, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the decision of the Court of Appeal. So he had to be retried. The process of all of these appeals took a few years. So his second trial didn't begin until the 28th of May in 1990. So this was really like four years after his initial trial that he went and was retried. Just before I get into the prosecution's evidence and what they had to retry him, I just want to make mention, because I wasn't sure where else to put this in my notes, that in March of 1990, so just a couple months before the trial began, uh, while they were preparing for Guy Palmeran's second trial, the Crown attorney, Susan McLean, had learned that Sergeant Michalowski had two notebooks for the Jessup investigation containing a number of divergent entries for the same events. So following an investigation, he was charged with perjury and attempting to obstruct justice in connection with his evidence at the first trial relating to all the evidence that he had in his notebook. I'm so impressed that charges were pressed against him. That's really good. Me too. Um, I'm a little disappointed that the charges were stayed because they said that his health was deteriorating or something and they basically permanently postponed the trial because of his health. Let him rot. That's that's so unacceptable. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is this case is making me bitter. I know. I know. I I have I had I don't know anything about this case going into it. Nothing. And I am yeah, a bitter human right now. It's such a big case because so much went wrong over so many years that I'm like trying to pick out the most important information. Additionally. In between the first and second trial, uh, an analysis of uh, more hairs of people that knew Christine. So the uh, CFS, the Center for Forensic Sciences, had done an analysis of hairs that also belonged to Christine Jessup's classmates. uh, And it revealed that two of the classmates also had hairs that were microscopically similar to the hair embedded in her necklace. So they couldn't use the hair anymore as evidence that Moren was most likely the suspect because in her small circle, they had already found two more people that had microscopically similar hair. Additionally, as I mentioned earlier, they found that Miss Nisnik, the scientist, uh, she never adequately or accurately communicated the limitations of hair comparison and also used the phrases, the sample is a match and the sample is comparable to or is similar to she basically used them interchangeably so they believe that it caused a little bit of confusion with the jury with how reliable the evidence actually was and it misled the jury to believe that this was concrete evidence of guilt since we're still talking about the hair analysis that had come out between the first and second trial i would also like to note 
that I'm not sure when this specific information came out, but it was detailed heavily in the uh, inquiry into what went wrong in his case. They found that the fiber analysis or the fiber samples taken from the first case had actually been contaminated at some point while being tested at the Center for Forensic Sciences. But whether it was because the Miss Nisnik and Erickson were embarrassed, whether it's because they just didn't want anyone to know they made a mistake, they didn't document that they that the evidence was contaminated and they didn't tell anyone. They didn't tell the prosecution. They didn't tell the police. They didn't tell anyone that the evidence was contaminated. That's really annoying. I'm so, I just I don't know how to express my frustration with this. Like, how is that even possible? Like, how are there no legal repercussions for something like that? Yeah. To make it worse, even though like the public and the prosecution didn't know about the contamination until I'm not sure if it was until the inquiry or not, but it is known that both of the scientists were aware of the contamination before the first trial. They the knew first trial about it? before the first trial where they used this evidence as key evidence. Well, thankfully he was found not guilty at the first trial, but like what? Yeah. They should be fired. Why are they do why are they in that job? Why is no one overseeing this? Yeah. Despite the fact that it was found to be contaminated, there was further examination of these already contaminated fibers that were ordered by Mr. Erickson to possibly be used at the second trial. And in this further examination of the fibers, they actually found information that was potentially exculpatory for uh, Moran, but they never disclosed it to the prosecution or the defense. So just like the hair evidence, the fiber evidence, it was never mentioned the limitations of the science or what is needed to make it more like sound. They never mention anything like that. And because they use the terms match and consistent with interchangeably, it obviously misled the jury. Uh, Some more evidence that the prosecution had against Moran in the second trial was once again the same jailhouse informants that they heard from the first time. Uh, However, during the second trial, May was diagnosed as a pathological liar. And in 1988, Mr. X... So this is before the second trial. In 1988, Mr. X was diagnosed with a personality disorder with sociopathic tendencies. Both of the inmates had stated that they were willing to implicate other inmates if it meant reducing or eliminating their sentences. And they didn't see anything wrong with that? No. And actually, between the first and second trial, because Mr. X had said that he would testify against Moran uh, to get into a, a halfway house, They did that for him. They released him from prison, put him in a halfway house. And between the first and second trial, he committed another crime and was readmitted into prison. And despite psychologists deeming him unreliable to testify, they still allowed him to testify at the second trial. How? One is a pathological liar. And they let them both testify. I'm sorry. Um, no. Mm -mm. Who are these people? Are they still alive? I'm not sure. Let me speak to them if so. This is. mm -mm. It was noted that at some point during the second trial, both informants were given the option not to testify. So they were basically asked, 
You don't have to testify if you don't want to. Both of them rejected the offer not to, and uh, they decided to testify anyways. And this information was not disclosed to the defense. After the trial, one of the two informants actually ended up recanting his statement and confessed to perjuring at both of Moren's trials. But further, after doing that, he tried to recant his recanted statement and say he didn't actually perjure. Was this the pathological liar? Or the sociopath. <laughs> either or. <laughs> but either or could be very, very explainable. Wow. Okay. Did yeah. the defense know that they were deemed, like, unfit to testify? That I'm honestly unsure about. I did read a lot about how we know after the fact they were unfit and how they were deemed unreliable in between trial. But I'm not certain if they ever disclosed this to the defense. They, they couldn't have, because the defense would have said something at court. They would have, like, that would have been their key defense. That's true. That's very you know? true. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, on top of the original evidence that they had presented both at the first and the second trial, they also called upon multiple supposed eyewitnesses. But this angers me, because all of these eyewitnesses were unwilling to testify at the first trial. Uh, It is heavily believed that the police coerced them into changing their stories or timelines because they wanted to convict Guy Paul because they had tunnel vision for him, and his alibi didn't fit with the story they wanted, so it's believed that they while speaking to the Jessup family and speaking to witnesses, suggested that perhaps they got the time of their arrival wrong and maybe they arrived home later than they believed. All I can do is shake my head. Our listeners can't see, but I'm just shaking my head. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, because they often did like these witness kind of questioning sessions in like groups and never video or audio recorded them. It is very possible that the police were feeding them information that they unknowingly put into their own story. So one other thing they tried to enter into evidence was smoking paraphernalia found at the body site as evidence suggesting it was left by the killer. Um, However, it was an uncontested fact by everyone that knew Moran that he was not a smoker. Uh, They tried to enter this into the first trial, too, but nothing really came of it, I guess. There wasn't much information about it in the first trial. Um, So on the scene of her on the body site, they found a cigarette butt or multiple. Uh, They found a lighter and also possibly found a cigarette package. I say possibly because this is where... The uh, the whole two notebooks with different notes from the sergeant come into play because uh, at the first trial, it was actually apparently determined that the cigarette butt they found on the scene was left by an inattentive officer who was helping them search. He was smoking and just put out his butt on the, cr- on, on the crime scene and just left it. That's terrible. Yeah. So that's unreliable. And then another officer at the scene claimed that he saw a cigarette package at the scene, but he later didn't adopt that position and he suggested that he may have actually just seen a milk carton and not actually a cigarette cartridge. Um, And Mike Lowski in the second notebook that he was writing attributed the finding of the milk carton to a different officer who completely denies that they found anything at the scene of importance relating to smoking. Um, does he know what a cigarette curtain looks like? And a milk carton. They are very different. You see, there are so many things wrong with this. Yeah. 
So this, many. This, this case really angered me. Yes, I can see why. Yeah. So <laughs> um, regardless of all of this really shoddy evidence put in by the prosecution, uh, the jury decided that Guy Paul Moran was guilty and they convicted him of first degree murder of Christine Jessup on the 30th of July in 1992. Um, I would also like to mention, I believe it was the second trial. There was actually too much publicity surrounding the trial. So they had to move it out of the uh, city that it was actually taking place in. So it actually took place in a courtroom in London, Ontario. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Guy Palmer was convicted. In the second trial, after people had already decided that he wasn't guilty, so this very well could have been avoided. Uh, so soon after his conviction, a committee was formed that they called the Justice for Guy Paul Moran Committee, and this was in an attempt to get him released and exonerated because people were obviously mad that this had happened. So they intended to get him released by arguing that the forensic evidence and jail jailhouse informant testimonies were unreliable. However, just a few days before they were set to appear in court with their argument, another DNA test, because at this point, DNA testing was uh, now a thing. It was coming into practice in Canada. Uh, they performed another DNA test on the semen in Christine's underwear and found that it did not match Moran. So it was exculpatory. And uh, with that information, they exonerated him on the 23rd of January in 1995. Yay. Okay. Yeah, very good. He still spent like three two or three years in prison that he should not have spent in the slightest, but I'm at least glad the DNA testing came in like within the first couple years of his conviction. Yeah. A lot of cases, it isn't until like decades later. Yeah, exactly. So uh, where is Guy now? I just thought you might want to know because he's exonerated and obviously wrongful conviction can have a big impact on a lot of people who experience it. It can basically ruin their lives. He received $1.25 million from the government, as well as a public apology in compensation for his wrongful conviction. And I know money doesn't make up for it, but at least it gives him something to restart his life, I guess, to kind of get him started. Um, and also, despite the miscarriage of justice, uh, he was still able to get married and raise children and produce a CD of his clarinet music and develop his skills further as a repair person. So despite this horrible setback in life, it seems like he was still able to make a very good, successful life for himself. That's so happy to hear. Like, I know. crappy that obviously he went through this hellhole of, what, like a decade. But uh, that sounds, that's awesome. That's good for him. Yeah. I'm really glad that he got an apology because I know that a lot of the wrongful conviction cases, when they get out, they're like, I just want you guys to apologize to me. Like, that's what I want. Admit you made a mistake and say sorry. Yeah, yeah See, exactly. On the other hand, I was thinking like, wow, a public apology. Thanks. What's that going to do? Like, <laughs> assholes. But no, yeah, I, I, that makes sense. I can understand now. I have one more thing to say for my case study, and that's who really killed Christine Jessup. So um, after Guy Paul Morin was exonerated and they found it actually wasn't him, uh, the case kind of went cold for like three decades. And the family was really worried that they wouldn't ever truly know who killed their daughter. And obviously that was 
like a big burden in their lives. It was really holding them back from truly grieving and like moving on. But then it was only October 15th of last year, so 2020, that the Toronto police announced that using genetic genealogy websites, they were able to solve her murder because they ended up putting the DNA evidence from the semen into like genetic genealogy stuff and they found their killer. The killer was Calvin Hooper, who actually died in 2015. So they weren't able to actually convict him. And that really angers me um, because like if they had done a good job of the investigation the first time, he very well could have been caught because he was a family friend of the Jessups, had helped with the search the day after she disappeared and also attended her funeral. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. That's yeah. so spooky. So he was there the whole time, just like lending a helping hand. And he's like, actually, by the way, I killed your daughter. Yeah, like literally under the police's noses the whole time. Oh, my, oh my goodness. Yeah. I so hate it. I, the inquiry states that it's unclear whether or not they would have actually caught the real perpetrator had the investigation gone correctly. But I think that's just the inquiry being really polite to the police. I definitely think they could have solved this if they just did a better job. 100%. Yeah, definitely. So I just briefly wanted to mention, uh, I said that how the Justice for Guy Paul Morin committee was created to help exonerate him. Um, And I just thought it was really interesting that from that, uh, the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted grew. And from that association, uh, Innocence Canada was born, which is a branch of the Innocence Project, which is very near and dear to my heart because wrongfully convicted individuals need justice. And with that, that leads us into Nicole's discussion about all of the issues with wrongful convictions and what happened in this case that maybe we could have avoided. Yeah. So like Rebecca just mentioned, the Innocence Canada stems from Innocence Project. So I'm going to talk a lot, not a lot, but I'm going to talk mainly about them because uh, they're this nonprofit organization that specializes in exonerating wrongfully convicted individuals. So they were founded in 1992 by these two super awesome guys, Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck. We (laughs) had to read a book uh, that they wrote in our forensics class called Actual Innocence. And it's probably one of the best books I've read so far. Um, It's not a textbook or anything. You can get it on Amazon, I think. It was really, really informative about wrongful convictions. So the mission of Innocence Project is to free incarcerated individuals who were wrongfully convicted and to bring reform to the system. So not only do they want to exonerate these people who have been wrongfully convicted, but they also want to make change in this legal system so it doesn't happen again, which is pretty great. They mainly use DNA testing as a way to exonerate these individuals, and they also give like background information and knowledge to the legal system and those in the legal system, so they're more aware of it as they have, like, if they have different cases or future cases that have these problems. Shockingly, well, I guess not shockingly, but 375 people in the United States have been exonerated since they began. And 21 of these people were actually on death row. I'm not sure what, like, Innocence Canada numbers are. This is just the original Innocence Project that I found stats for. Incredibly, 165 of the actual assailants have been um, identified and convicted. So it's not really a lot out of the 375, but it's still something, which is great. And shockingly, 
they served an average of 14 years in prison before their exoneration. That's so friggin' sad. Yeah, and that's an average, too. So, obviously, there's going to be some people below that. Um, but there's people that served... I've read cases where they've served up to 30 years. It's insane. And to give you guys kind of an idea of the demographics of these 375 individuals, 225 of them were African-American. 117 were Caucasian. 29 of them are Latinx, and this is just a gender-neutral term for Latina or Latino. One is Indigenous. And one also self-identified as other. An alarming proportion of these are African-American individuals. So the purpose of this podcast, not to talk about Innocence Canada or Innocence Project, but the causes of wrongful convictions. And you can think of probably anything that could relate to a wrongful conviction, but there were nine in particular that Innocence Project talks about. And of course, as we mentioned, one, eyewitness identification error. So this is the leading cause of wrongful convictions, and it contributes 69% of convictions that were overturned by DNA testing with Innocence Project. So that's a lot. The public knows very little about the issues of relying on identifications, and this can pose further problems since the jury is made up of the public. So if they're not aware of this, they're not going to understand when it's brought into court. And as we talked about two episodes ago, um, cross-race effect is also an issue. I forget the term that we use, but someone is 1.4 times more likely to remember and correctly identify someone of the same race as them. And often in these identifications, it's cross-racial identification that's being made. So you don't have that increased likelihood of a correct identification. And last episode, obviously false confessions. 29% of Innocence Project exonerations involved false confessions. And as we mentioned, people find it very difficult to believe that someone would confess to a crime they never committed, because why would you do that? And there aren't really any formal rules to guard false confessions in the legal system. But thankfully, like the Supreme Court of Canada, we created a standard, as we mentioned, that all confessions must be voluntary to be admissible in court. But what is voluntary? How do you prove that? We had this discussion last episode. If you didn't watch it, go check it out. Number three, Mr. Big Stings. I don't know if we talked about this last episode. So Mr. Big is a big thing in Canada. Well, it was, not so anymore, but... It's an elaborate undercover operation where police trick innocent individuals into confessing. So yes, this is a cause for wrongful convictions, as one might see why. It was actually developed in Canada in the 90s. It's banned in the United States and Britain, but it's still used in Canada and Australia. Um, It's not always innocent people, right? But it is definitely yeah. like, it's pretty coercive, so it seems like... Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. okay, so I'll take back what I said. Any suspect... But the majority is that they have a person who they think is guilty. And if they do anything to get a confession out of them, whether it is them, they did commit the crime or not. So a lot of the times it is innocent individuals. But yes, thank you for correcting me on that. But what this is, so weeks and months are spent undercover learning about everything of their suspect. They gain their trust. And once they have enough information, they set up this whole fake criminal operation. The premise of it is that they try to lure the suspect into their gang. Then the head honcho, Mr. Big, 
asks for a confession to the given crime that they're wanting information on as proof of loyalty and that he will be a good gang member. Usually they promise help to prove their innocence. So it's like, hey, if you confess, you know, I know you're loyal and I'll help you get out of it, get out of whatever happens if you are convicted. And of course, these suspects are also threatened by Mr. Big because he's a gang member, supposedly, and he has people in all of high places. Number four is false guilty pleas, which I never really thought of. I thought that kind of went under false confessions. But 44 of the 375 exonerees of the Innocence Project, so it's almost 12%, pled guilty when they didn't commit the crime. So plea bargains are seen as a necessity for the legal system, but they also pose serious threats and issues because 95% of cases end up in plea bargains, which means they don't go to court. So 3 to 5% of cases go to court and are tried. So these people are pleading guilty to get out of a harsher sentence, I guess. So a lot of the time, they're given, they're faced with life in prison, notion that they cannot convince the jury of their innocence, so they will plead guilty to get a lesser sentence, basically. So it's kind of like a false confession. Number five, as you kind of mentioned, Rebecca, is tunnel vision. So this is when investigators focus only on one suspect, excluding all others from their investigation. So this is exactly what they did with Guy Palmerin. And it's very frustrating, as there were several other suspects they could have looked at. And this is when they seek evidence to fit their theory rather than creating theories based on the evidence they find, which drives me insane. But that's another topic. I could rant on and on about that. So number six is systemic discrimination. So 70% of those that were exonerated by DNA evidence from the Innocence Project were marginalized and racialized individuals. So to compare the 70%, um, 61% of the American population is Caucasian. So this is a staggering number. And here in Canada, Indigenous individuals are extremely overrepresented in the criminal justice system. So in 2016, 26% of those admitted to either provincial or territorial correction services were Indigenous adults, even though they only make up 3% of the entire Canadian adult population, which baffles me. So 26% of those sent to jail were Indigenous, and yet only 3% of the entire population are Indigenous adults. That feels so wrong. Yeah, there's definitely systemic discrimination that comes into play for wrong. And I'm not saying that they didn't commit the crime that they did. Like, I don't know. This is just a statistic I found. But it's been shown that the race of an individual can greatly impact wrongful convictions and can cause investigators to look closer at people of color. Number seven is the evolution of and errors in forensics science. We had a whole course on this last semester and this semester, I guess. 43% of wrongful convictions were due to the misapplication of forensic science. Many forms of forensic science have become scrutinized and DNA evidence was seen as the gold standard. So anything other than that, you're kind of like, whoa, this is junk. We don't want it. So the highly scrutinized forms are hair microscopy, which was used in Guy Palmerin's case, bite mark analysis, which gets my knickers in a knot, however that saying goes. <laughs> I hate bite mark analysis. And anyways, firearm analysis and shoe comparison. 
and I guess tire marks. So any, um, what is it called? Journey pattern? Pattern or impression evidence, yeah. Yeah, so they specified shoe comparisons, but I'm like, that's kind of the same as tire and any other impression evidence. Anyways, those are like the ones that are highly scrutinized. But as we learned in our past class or last semester, literally every forensic science has been scrutinized and is questioned when experts are brought in to testify. So it's not like you can bring a science into court and everyone's like, yes. Anyways, they're subjective, obviously, and rely on interpretation. So there's always room for error. And unfortunately, juries rarely understand expert testimony they hear, and they don't know the weight, if any, to give terms like consistent with, matching, and virtually excluded. So as we talked about with these samples that matched, well, we know that match is impossible in forensic science, but jury members don't understand this. They said, oh yeah, this is perfect. This is going to happen. But it's not a thing. And that needs to be told to jury members, I think. I don't think it is. I think now with all the recognition that forensic sciences have been getting, we need to have an expert come in and say, like, hey, these are the issues. These are the things you need to be aware of. Like, pay attention to this. It is a fallible science. Like, it's not perfect. Yeah. Especially if it's used to convict someone and not used as a defense. I think it really needs to focus on it because 43% of these 375 individuals were put to jail because of crappy forensic science. That's such a high percentage. That shocks me. I know. Isn't that insane? Uh, Number eight, of course, huge subject of this one, um, jailhouse informant testimony is a cause for wrongful convictions. Who would have thought? Um, So this is when prisoners give information to investigators, whether true or not, most commonly to receive incentives. So the Innocence Project cases, 17% had to do with jailhouse informants. That's still a lot. Like, I thought maybe here or there, because snitches aren't really admired in jail, I thought the number would be lower. But it's not. If someone's in a position where their word is going to get them things, especially in prison, like in Guy Paul Moran's case, like, oh, I'll testify if you get me out of prison and into a halfway house. Like, of course, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. They don't want to be in prison. Yeah. And we learned actually in Sheck and Neufeld's book that there are serial liars that find joy out of telling investigators what they want to hear in cases that they have no idea anything about. Like, there was this one individual who snitched, I guess you could say, quote, unquote, on, what, over 30 cases that he didn't know the suspect in it? Like, that just shouldn't be allowed. But anyways, yeah, in Canada, the use of these informants have declined since recommendations, I think, especially after Guy Paul Moran's case, they've been implemented. So this information isn't admissible in court as much as it used to be. Like, sometimes it still does get in, but it's frowned upon more, especially in Canada. I don't know about the United States anywhere else, but we realize that it is not good. Look at us go. Look at us go. Who would have thought? And lastly, one of the main ones, because obviously there are so many causes to wrongful convictions, this one is professional misconduct. Sounds a little familiar. Sounds a little right for uh, this current case. (laughs) So, of course, this is how police, lawyers, and forensic scientists, basically anyone on this case, handle it. Even though the majority of lawyers and police have good intentions, sometimes they don't. 
And it may be an unaware thing, like they don't know they're doing it, but it can cause a lot of issues. And especially defense counsel. Defense counsel is one of the biggest group, I guess, or subgenre of this professional misconduct because they play a large role in their client's case. And I know it's not like they're not inadvertently doing it because their job is to defend their client. But the lack of defense is what poses an issue and can help a wrongful conviction. Well, like think about the Norfolk Four and their crappy defense. Exactly. And I was going to say, I did a case on Tammy Marquette. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. It has Q's and D's and T's. She had a defense lawyer through legal aid and they did nothing. They were like, okay, well, handle this on your own. And exactly the same thing as Norfolk for. We touched on it last time. But through legal aid, these lawyers are working for lower income clients. They're typically overworked, they're spread too thin, and they don't put the proper amount of effort into one case. They put minimal effort into all of their cases, which you wouldn't necessarily get if you're paying thousands for a defense lawyer. And a lot of times, people who are wrongfully convicted aren't in a financial situation to spend money on the best defense lawyer. From what we've seen, at least. I could be wrong, but from what we've seen, they're not the most rich people. And when it comes to police officers, they obviously face pressures, especially in high-profile cases, which can result in this tunnel vision as we talked about. And this is when too much pressure is placed. They're having to meet demands of everyone else. They have to meet the demands of the media. And an example of misconduct that happens from the prosecution is withholding evidence from the defense. So That's it familiar is, too. I, hmm, how many have we checked off this list in this case? There's so many causes of this case that went wrong. So the defense, this is what baffles me, because it is a law that the defense is allowed access to all evidence the Crown has against the defendant. And this is because this is their right to a fair trial. There are, like, minimal exceptions to this. And I don't know what these exceptions are, but they have to be pretty good exceptions if the prosecution is withholding evidence from the defense. Like, that should not ever be a thing. So how many of the nine did this case have? Yeah, so there was tunnel vision, um, jailhouse informants, yeah, faulty forensic science, yeah, uh, professional misconduct. In the second trial, they did have eyewitnesses testifying, but it's believed they are coerced by police to change their stories. So that's five. That's five out of uh, nine. Just off the top of my head, that's five. There could have been more that I just... Those are the five that we've listed. There are so many causes to wrongful convictions. That's ridiculous. And the fact that no one addressed or noticed any of this through his whole trial process, like trial number one, trial number two, the years in between. Well, I think it's crazy that some of it was addressed. Like they found that the sergeant had two contradicting notebooks. And like it was addressed, but what came of it? Exactly. And they still even let them use that evidence in the second trial. And it's like, if you didn't know where in the process of the investigation it got contaminated, it should just be completely thrown out because you don't know where it started to affect the rest of your evidence. Yeah, just this whole topic baffles me. And then you kind of have that question like, well, yeah, they're wrongfully convicted. But what happens after the fact they're convicted? Because no one really talks about what the, quote, offender 
unquote, goes through. And so I actually found a study that was conducted in Canada. It's a very small sample size. They only looked at five men, but it was very informative. So they, all five had been wrongfully convicted of a crime. And the crimes weren't all the same, but they were some pretty serious offenses. And one hadn't been fully exonerated. I think it was a murder charge. He wasn't fully exonerated, but he was out of prison. So it was very similar to the Norfolk Four case where he wasn't part, they weren't pardoned at first, but they were out. So basically, prisoners who were convicted of wrongful convictions face a lot more effects than those who are just in jail for a long term. So say, Rebecca, you were wrongfully convicted and you're spending five years in jail. Journey, if you were correctly convicted and spending five years in jail, Rebecca is going to face a lot more problems, like emotionally, mentally, than you would being in jail for that same amount of time. I think that makes sense because it's a matter of like an entire system that's meant to protect you has failed you. Exactly. And so these individuals have several ways in which they cope once they're in jail, um, serving their time and after. So one of the main ways that these individuals cope is through violence and cooperation. When you're in prison, it becomes more of a survival tactic because there's violence every day. It becomes a part of your life. So certain individuals who are wrongfully convicted will go through this violence and cooperation stage where they assimilate themselves in prison to get by in prison, which makes sense. I feel like everyone would have to do that one way or another. But instead of doing that, some may focus on withdrawal, isolation, and suicidal ideation. So this can include physical or conscious withdrawal from other inmates. Suicidal ideation and attempts were unfortunately a very common reality for those that were wrongfully convicted, which unfortunately makes sense. This whole system failed you. You didn't commit this crime. Everyone thinks you commit this crime. It's understandable. And when you withdraw and you have these this isolation from others, this can have very negative effects when it comes to like depression and, again, suicidal ideation. So it's just not good when you're wrongfully convicted after. It's just not good. Another one, too, which we've seen a lot is that these wrongfully convicted individuals become very preoccupied with their exoneration. So they basically become obsessed with the details of their case. They go over court transcriptions. They go over all evidence. And they're in pursuit of being exonerated. So they contact all of these lawyers. They ask for pro bono cases, like family outsides working on it. They just want justice, in a sense. They want to be out for a crime they obviously didn't commit. There, of course, are long-term effects after their exoneration and release. So these individuals in the study said they had a loss of freedom and former identity. They had loss of family as children when they were arrested were apprehended from them and alongside losing family while incarcerated. You kind of have that shift in how you're viewed from family if they start to believe that you did it. Which we saw in the Norfolk Four case, like, I think it was Joe Dick's mom or mom and dad were like, well, he must have done it if the attorney or the defense attorney is saying he did it. There is an increase in tolerance of injustice upon their release. So they're just angry at the justice system and they have every right to be angry. It makes sense. Their rights aren't being respected. There's unfair consequences and outcomes just because they've been in jail. No one knows all of the facts of the case. It's really unfortunate. And they continue to feel as though they're still imprisoned while exonerated. As we talked about, I'm mentioning a lot of Norfolk Four because it happened with them. They were wrongfully convicted. They couldn't live life to the fullest, I guess. 
the Scott Yeah, really and like, when they were exonerated, they still had to register as sex offenders, which is obviously very difficult to do when exactly. you're innocent. Exactly. And although those four, they got a f- three of them got full pardons, four of them. You know, if you can't be fully pardoned, you still have to register as a sex offender. You still have that label. And one of the participants in the study said that he had anxiety doing, like, simple, daily, mundane tasks. So he went to a grocery store for his wife and faced discrimination there because, you know, people were staring at him. They knew kind of thing. And, like, if you're in that position, it's understandable for some fear. But you don't know. You don't know the case, you know? I don't know if that makes sense. I think it's just unfortunate, too, that, like, they think they know the case, but do they know he's been exonerated? Like, they obviously heard about the crime and him being convicted, but how many people know that it's all not true? Exactly. And even then, like, I don't remember which case it was, but there was one that after the person was exonerated who was wrongfully convicted, despite the fact that he was exonerated, the family of the victim refused to believe that he wasn't the perpetrator. Well, that was... Uh, Norfolk Four did that too. The victim's mom was very adamant that these men did it and that the justice system would pay if they commit another crime kind of thing. Okay, maybe that's who I'm thinking of. I know there but there's, another, there's, yeah, there's several like cases. That. There's several cases. And just kind of lastly, I wanted to talk about preventing these miscarriages of justice because we're kind of in school for this. Well, not really, but we're we're learning all of the things wrong. Obviously, there are several things wrong with wrongful convictions but there has to be something some way to improve this in 2005 the department of justice canada they released the report on the prevention of miscarriages of justice so this was a list of recommendations to prevent wrongful convictions and a further study was said to be required as to how the recommendations could be implemented And those within the system often don't believe that they're doing anything wrong. They don't like change. So they don't really follow these recommendations because it's not it's not a law. They just are recommendations to do this. I kind of just briefly said to avoid tunnel vision, you know, work as a team when reviewing suspects and evidence, try and minimize subjective interest in only one suspect. There should be repercussions to scientists that testify faulty science on the stand. So those two scientists that gave expert analysis on hair samples, something should have happened to them for withholding evidence. Like that is just, they shouldn't be able to walk away from that. No, there definitely needs to be like repercussions for people like that. Yeah, and I also said eliminating any form of incentive or use of jailhouse informants. And this would be critical. Like, I really don't know how this case would have turned out without the jailhouse informants. Without, like, if we got rid of those five causes of a wrongful conviction, would he still been a suspect? Would he still have gone to jail for this? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, it's honestly hard to say because we have all of these problems that are still like relatively prevalent. But I definitely think obviously improving the system by trying to minimize like the professional misconduct and trying to uh, ensure that like everyone, every party knows everything they need to. A lot of wrongful conviction could be avoided. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. And I think that like if we fix this, then obviously there's going to be less wrongful convictions and less people going to jail who shouldn't. And that's going to like increase your faith in the system. So people are going to have a more trust because quite honestly, I've lost quite a bit of my faith in the system. Like I'm terrified of like even just being questioned about a crime because like I know that there's a good possibility that I could go to jail just because they think I'm suspicious or whatever. Like that's terrifying. 
I want to say I have the balls to be like, nope, show me the proof. Like, as we talked about last episode, like, if you go in for a polygraph and they say you failed, like, show me the evidence. I want to say I'd have the balls to do that and try and prevent it, knowing what we know about wrongful convictions. But you aren't in that stress situation of these people. Like, I could sit here all day behind a screen and be like, "Mm, yeah, I would never be wrongfully convicted. But to be literally shitting your pants in front of an investigator being interviewed, like, that's so different. Right? My my mind would just go blank and everything that I know about this would be like, okay, yeah, no, just arrest me. Like, I did it. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Rebecca, (laughs) she enjoyed my comment. I'm just laughing. I I have nothing to say. I'm just laughing at Journey. (laughs) Fair enough. That's kind of like all I had to say. There's several ways to prevent wrongful convictions. I didn't really go a lot into the science because I guess wrongful convictions encompass so much. I just think, you know, relaying the nine most important some statistics that's key information on this because wrongful convictions can be anything and we could sit here for hours and hours and hours but hopefully that was enough to help listeners understand how bad wrongful convictions are yeah especially coupled with our last couple episodes where we've gone into detail about false confessions and Mm -hmm. eyewitness misidentifications which are like the top two causes so that's really helpful yeah Do you guys have any ways to prevent miscarriages of justice? Education. Educate the courts. Educate the system. Let them know what's wrong with things. Yeah, I like what you said earlier, too. I think I know expert testimony can be frowned upon sometimes, but I think if you had like an unbiased expert come in that say the the judge brings in, not even the crown or the defense, but to say, hey, these are the underlying causes of wrongful convictions, address the jury and kind of give a lowdown of, you know, what we just did, the nine causes. I think that could be so beneficial in this. Like, the jury doesn't know anything, which sucks. They're just, they're regular people and they don't have, like, we would have, like, the upper hand because we've been educated in this. So I think that if they were educated in this, they would at least be able to know And use that to critically think about the evidence that they're being presented. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, like, there could be members of the jury sitting in that have a similar education we do. Because, like, I've been called for jury duty. I didn't end up getting on the jury, but, like, I've been called for it. And it's like, there could be people that know about this stuff on the jury. But just because they have such a huge population pool to pick from, like, what's the likelihood you're going to get someone every time on the jury that's educated on this? Yeah. And it's not like you can, because I think, what is it? Lawyers can't be on a jury. Police officers can't be on a jury. What are like, I think like it's public service, isn't it? Uh, Okay. Because I know like if you have knowledge of this stuff or I don't know, you can't be on a jury, which seems redundant to me. But anyways, that is all I have for the background of wrongful convictions. I think it'd be really interesting. We don't have a lot of interaction with our viewers. It's typically like our parents texting us on the side being like, hey, I really liked this episode. (laughs) But I think it'd be really cool if some of our listeners, you know, commented or sent us an email about how they think you could prevent all of this. If there was something we missed, I think that'd be really cool. So let us know. Yeah, we're very open to discussion on all of this because it clearly is of great interest to us and we would love to open the discussion more to our viewers yeah yeah we're still learning you guys are learning with us so maybe you guys can teach us something exactly look at us go beautiful thank you nicole that's very (laughs) awesome you're welcome just in addition to what nicole had kind of said 
Um, I have this statistic here that says that African-American men make up 40.2% of the United States prison population, even though they only comprise 6.2% of the entire USA population. Isn't that heartbreaking? That's insane. The statistics are so screwed for marginalized and racialized, like, yeah, racialized communities. It's baffles me. Yeah, it's so upsetting how much of a role systemic racism plays in the justice system right now. Anyway, thank you, Nicole, for that riveting discussion of wrongful convictions and the many causes of them. Rebecca, would you be able to tell us what our next topic is? Yeah, so we have decided, because we have been doing me and Nicole's uh, great love for psych (laughs) and law for the past couple weeks, the next case we are going to handle will be Robert Picton uh, and geographic profiling, because Journey is actually a part of the anthropology program at St. Mary's and has a great love for all things anthropology. And Robert Picton is a very interesting case to cover that is also in our homeland of Canada. I'm so excited about this episode. You have, like, a deep love for Robert Picton. It's kind of uh, scary at times, but no. It's just, like, I wrote a paper on him last year, and I just have so much knowledge about this case, and I just find it Yeah, it's brilliant. The science behind it is super cool that you talked about last year, too. Yeah, and geographic profiling is super, super interesting, the way that they can do it. It's relatively new, too, isn't it? Yeah, the guy who... Um, like invented geographic profiling, worked on the Robert Picton case. That was where they were merged, like, right? Yeah. And the police officers didn't take him seriously. So he ran around the world and kind of introduced it to the rest of the world. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is so cool. And then like 10 years later, the Vancouver police was like, hey, uh, so actually we need your help. <laughs> and then they solved the case, even though he got like fired from the Vancouver police earlier because they didn't believe in his science. Oh my gosh. So anyway, well, I'm very excited about that. Yeah. I hope everyone else is excited for it too. It, it's a it's a messed up case. I mean all all of them are. What am I saying? They're all pretty messed up, but this one is very interesting. It brings up a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, Nicole, where can our listeners find us if they want to get in contact with us? Our listeners can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. We use our YouTube just to post episodes as well if you don't have any streaming service at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC. And our website, whattheforensics.ca, there you have all of the information about us, who we are, our source lists any pictures that go with our episodes we have episodes too we have um, embedded a a link to listen to our episodes as well and you can email us any suggestions recommendations comments hopefully not hate please don't be mean to us there's a contact page on our website as well so you can contact us that way or just send us like a pm on instagram or facebook yeah that's true our email is what the forensics at gmail.com i guess no one really uses email but it's there if you want to email us Perfect. Um, So before we go, I have three things to say. We have included the link to Guy Paul Moran's CD on eBay if any of you want to buy it or listen to it or find it or whatever. We'll put that link in our source section of our website. Um, We've kind of already talked about this, but I'd really like to hear from our listeners about any cases where the person who was convicted was actually guilty, but then was later released because they thought they were innocent. Or even though they actually went to trial and was found not guilty. And then they were actually guilty. 
because we've talked a lot about obviously innocent individuals being found guilty, but there are there has to be cases where the system's just corrupt in itself that they let guilty people walk. Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting. And I have a joke for you guys. I'm very excited. Okay, did you know that forensic pathologists make great therapists? Do they? Yeah, people are always opening up to them. Oh, no. (laughs) For those who don't know, forensic pathologists perform autopsies. Yeah. So you're literally, oh, that's a good one. Right, I thought that one was fantastic. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of what you have to think about, but I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's that was good. All I could do was just make a face, because I was like, yeah. oh, well, that was a smart one. Oh, it's kind of one of those ones where you just have to shake your head. A little bit. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you for yeah. that. All right. Well, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.